Hello and welcome everyone back to another episode of The Publisher Lab. I'm Tyler Bishop and for those of you following along, uh, our good friend Ms. Shelby Kang uh, is absent. She's on uh, vacation traveling the globe and in that time we have a couple of new voices filling in, both Alan Longstreet and Sarah Klaus. Say hello guys hello. and girls. Hello, hello. So we are doing today's episode a little bit different than normal. So um, normally you guys will find different articles and news from the week and we'll pull those out. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to experiment a little bit with is because there are several theme topics that seem to come up over and over again on the show. Um, I thought it would be fun to do some Twitter polls. Uh, we spent some money to, to have them boosted and sent around to specific people across the web. And yeah, I, I wanted to get kind of an objective look at um, how others feel about some of the subjects we talk about all the time. Uh, you know, digital content, who's paying for it, digital advertising, subscriptions, um, SEO, Google, all the platforms, fun stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's <laughs> riveting. It's not PM, it's not PMP deals and robots.txt this time. So I think I'll give you guys a little bit of a break. I know uh, those subjects have come up before, and it's it's one of those things that um, it's not the easiest subject to talk through sometimes, or probably listen to if you're a listener. Maybe there's this huge market out there of people that are searching for a robots.txt uh, uh, podcast, but I doubt it. So I'm going to kick it off with the first one. So I'm interested in both of your thoughts on our first poll, which was, do you currently have a paid subscription to any textual digital content providers or publications? This comes up a lot on the show. Basically, the theory or idea being that very, very few people subscribe to any kind of digital content, um, textual content, um, and even those that do subscribe to a very kind of limited amount of news publishers. So what do you guys think? What, what was your expectation on this poll? Did you, did you think the answer was going to be yes or no, that people have existing paid subscriptions to textual digital content? I definitely thought that people wouldn't. Um, I personally don't, and no one else I know does not, just because there's so much free information on the internet um, that the idea of having to pay to you know read something online is hard to grasp, especially if you are younger or you're in school and you don't have very much money, which is a lot of people who are online. Um, it kind of makes sense that people are not subscribing. They're putting their money more towards video subscriptions, which is what we talked about last week. Yeah, and I have to agree with Sarah on this one um, because, I mean, I even remember in some of my journalism classes when we'd have to remind the professor, like, hey, we need that subscription to read these New York Times and, you know, Wall St um, whatever, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post articles, and they'd have to give them give us their password in order for us to do our assignments. Um, and and I'm, I'm in the same boat, Sarah. I, I kind of... Look at look at this topic with a critical eye in regards to if someone's trying to charge me for information, I think to myself, well, I there's a plethora of mm -hmm. other information out there that I can get for free, of in my opinion, you know, equal quality. And yeah, so, and that was what yeah. like the internet was when it started. Is you could go on and you could find anything online, and but there were still magazines, and if you wanted a subscription to a magazine because you liked what that magazine had to say. 
you could pay for a subscription and get it in the mail. Other than that, like you could go online and read something. But now all the magazines are online. Mm-hmm. And now if you have to pay, it's like, yeah, I was already getting free information on here before. On the it's internet. almost as if, you know, before they sent you a magazine in the mail, right? Yeah. And you had the textual content. Mm-hmm. But now it's as if everybody sends you a magazine in the mail. But one particular one, if you like it the most, maybe you'll pay for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know it's work. I'm, I'm curious to hear what you think about this, Tyler, as well. But like, I know for some of the big players in this industry, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, etc., that the model with online subscription has has worked, you know, to to some extent. But fun fact, listeners, as well, about ninety percent of all of publisher of uh, like you know newspapers, the tr- in the traditional sense, the revenues. They come from advertising. Yeah. Only 10% of all the revenues are going to roughly are going to come from people who subscribe. That's how they pay their, you know, keep their lights on, pay their journalists is through advertisements. So, yeah, that that's a great point. And that's the main thing, which is, you know, there's a lot of um, most of the publishers of any kind that are that are profitable from a subscription textual content standpoint are very small. Meaning they are a sm- very like a, a good example m- might be someone like eMarketer, which they target a very specific group of uh, folks that are willing to pay a lot of money to have unique research data and information, which it's more of in a B2B sense, right? And we've talked about this before as well. Like the paid subscriptions that I have, the majority of them, I pay for using um, my employer's like funds, right? Because yeah. they're they're trade publications. So Adweek, Adage, Digiday, mm-hmm. these are all things that we talk about on the show. And they're all things that I subscribe to um, because of that, right? The things that I personally have subscriptions to, there's only two. And one I never use since the Washington Post. I rarely read it. Um, I had the New Yorker for like a year, but it was the one they actually sent it to you. And I just like liked the way it looked. I thought it was cool. <laughs> And then I canceled it because I was like, why am I paying for this? Because you can read The New Yorker online and there's articles on there for free. And I think that that, that the case truly is, you mentioned something earlier, which is it's a commodity, right? And John Cole and I brought this up a couple episodes ago where unless you have something that's really unique that no one could get anywhere else, then it's really hard to get people to pay for it. That used to be the idea behind like eBooks and studies and you know, uh, medical information, medical studies, you know, PubMed and things like that. Um, that information is something you can kind of specialize in and make people pay for. But, you know, the rest, of, like the news, it's really hard. And people say, I really want quality journalism. But, you know, a better question maybe to ask people, because in general, um, whether people have paid subscriptions or not, I think everybody has a threshold in which they're willing to pay for, for subscriptions. The idea being... You know, are you ever going to have 20 paid subscriptions personally? Probably not, right? That really limits the amount of publishers that can probably capitalize on this. And um, furthermore, um, you know, the Apple News of the world, which is this kind of like idea, well, maybe it'll be a Spotify for publications, is so unprofitable to digital publishing that it, it doesn't make any sense. From a user standpoint, it's great. But... You could still look at it and say, well, I still want all content. Maybe I may be willing to pay a small amount to get these premium ones that I know the name brands, but that price got too high. You would just say, well, I'll yeah. again find it someplace else. 
Yeah, I think that happened to me the other day. I was on, I somehow swiped into Apple News and I was reading some things. And then there was one article I tried to click on and it said, you know, Apple News Plus or something. Yeah, Apple News Plus, that's what it is. Yeah, and I couldn't read the article. And so I clicked back. I did not. Um, and then you could just Google search the topic and, and find another, figure out whatever you know, the article find was another publisher about. that has a And that, that, that is often what I do whenever I go to a site and yeah. I see an article or some information that I'm interested in reading. Um, and it's blocked because it's, I've read my number of shared ones where it wants me to sign in. I just uh, type in the topic to Google News and see who else has written about the topic. Um, so next next poll question was, in five years, five years, so let's see, be 2024, in five years, how do you imagine Google search will change the most? And we gave them four options. One, largely stays the same. Two, more content in the results. Three, will be less popular than it is today. And then four, more rich media, meaning like more video media, more audio, just more integrated, and I would say probably more mobile too. So which of those four would, would A, I guess, would you say, and then B, what do, what do you think that publishers said? I mean, I think that, you know, it's it's kind of like an, an A, B, D example where I feel like it's, or a, a, a BD example where it's like more content is going to be in the results and then there's going to be more, there's going to be richer media. I do not think that, you know, Google's going to become less, Google search is going to become less popular. And I don't think it's going to stay the same. I think it's constantly evolving. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know, you know, Shelby mentioned this on a recent episode about, you know, the fever dream where we wake up and Bing is now suddenly our <laughs> our uh, search dream. of search uh, engine of choice. Can you imagine? <laughs> Yeah, I don't see it happening anytime soon. No. So that's I'm surprised that there's such a large percentage of people who said that too. So what what are the results? So uh, the results were basically that it's like almost like a four way tie. I mean, largely stays the same was 29 percent, which is the largest. Um, more content and results was the second with 28. More rich media was 24, and then 19 percent said will be less popular. Um, Sarah, does this surprise you that 19% of people thought Google would be less popular than it is today for search? Yeah, just because, I don't know, I I think it's more of like it's hard for people to imagine anything that is not like how it currently is. Um, and I think that's also why a lot of people voted largely stays the same because especially if you're not like in the industry or learning about what's going on in the industry, then you like honestly have no idea and you're kind of just like, I can't really imagine it being any different, so it's probably going to stay the same. But I think it's headed towards more rich media just because Google's huge, and we all know that. Um, They're always, you know, they have so many people who work there. There's always new things being put in place. So I think that they're going to keep advancing um, and at a quick pace um, in order to, you know, stay as huge as they are. I think the thing about the rich media that's interesting is, a lot of people think of Google search from a desktop perspective, but when you think about it from a mobile perspective, you start to realize, well, audio, video, instant results, like your phone is essentially, um, like uh, I heard somebody recently say, artificial intelligence doesn't have to get integrated in human beings because we carry it around all the time right now on our phone. We just have a clunky way of doing it. And so when you think about it in terms of your phone being this like augmented part of you already, Google really sees that as their future. Uh, I may have mentioned this on the show before. I'm not sharing any internal Google secrets that I'm privy to that nobody else is. 
Google does not see their future as a search engine, as uh, an ad business, as any of the things that they make their money on today. They see themselves as an artificial intelligence business. And I do think that they see uh, Alexa, Siri, and uh, Hey Google as like the those three things, the, the major platforms, they see those elements as being the probably the most core pieces of our future. And so when you think of it through that lens, Google search is definitely, uh, they've got a leg up because they have this huge database of information out there. But I think if you're a publisher, you know, largely you're thinking about this in terms of how is this going di- to disrupt people searching for my physical content? I don't think that's Google's business. Those things are different. Google's not going to write articles um, in the next five years. Uh, I don't think they want to. They don't want to worry about attribution and how that's going to get done. They don't want machines to write it. But they are interested in providing people answers and information. And I think if they can do that through audio, if they can do that through video, if they can do that through augmented reality somehow, that they're going to find ways to do it. So I don't think this detracts from publishers at all. Uh, but I do think it is going to change the way that uh, Google search works. And there will probably be opportunities there in the same way that there's opportunities now. So in the next poll, we asked if advertisers only use your your browsing data to target you with ads. So if the only reason why anyone was tracking your behavior online as a, as a user browsing the internet, which of these best describes how you would feel about that? A, you'd be not concerned. B, you'd be very concerned. Or C, you'd be indifferent. So rather than ask you how you feel about it, how do you think the World Wide Web mainly digital publishers and content creators, how do you think they felt about it? I feel like it might be kind of an even split or perhaps leaning towards leaning to- towards concerned. Um, I feel like everything that happened in, you know, I know that's in, in a different realm in terms of the government, but, you know, everything that happened post-Snowden, I feel like people are more critical in terms of how their data is being collected, who... You know, is Big Brother watching who's who's behind the screen in essence? So it'd be interesting to see what they did say. Um, but then again, there's a, there's a big mm-hmm. cohort of people who feel, you know, if you're not doing anything wrong or if an advertiser wants to click my data, it's going to better serve me in terms of what I'm looking for as mm-hmm. a consumer. I don't care. And that's, that's kind the of the thing. mindset. Yeah, that's the thing about why people freak out on the internet is, oh, who's watching me behind my computer? Who's the government official on my phone listening to everything I'm saying? And people have all these, you know, discussions online and people really don't like it. But, you know, what this question is asking is all they're doing is targeting ads to you. Mm-hmm. And if you, you know, someone who is like actually understood what that means is not that big of a deal. Um, but people at first are like, this is a huge invasion of privacy. Um, when really, I mean, in my opinion, it's not. Because, I don't, yeah. Yeah, I'm curious to hear what how, how they responded. Well, it was a 50-50 split largely because we have 34% that said they were indifferent and 17% that said they were not concerned. That leaves 49% that said they were very concerned. So that means 50 per- basically half thought they weren't concerned or they're indifferent about it, and then the other half was concerned. What I think is interesting about the very concerned side is that's happening now, right? So yeah. that means that 50% of people are very concerned now. And like Sarah was saying, you know, people... I think uh, a lot of people didn't understand that their privacy, number one, I don't think they understand how their privacy is being affected. And number two, um, I don't think they knew it. So 
if somebody says, you know, like the, Edward, the Snowden thing is a really good example because it's like you find out that, you know, maybe just metadata, but then they find out like you could, you could spy on all kinds of crazy stuff mm-hmm. with individuals and it's not just metadata, right? And so when you hear that and then you hear like advertisers tracking behavior online and you realize like maybe that's just an IP address, right? Sounds pretty benign, but I don't think people draw that distinction. I think a lot of times people think like, oh, it's the Snowden thing. Like they know that I was reading about, you know, uh, I don't know, outbound motors on boats or something. Yeah. And they knew they know that about me now, you know, and they're they're tracking me. They know that I read about boats and they know that I read about cats and, you know, whatever it is that they think that 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 advertisers are doing that is very personal. And it it really is big data in a lot of respects. Mm-hmm. And that's why I wanted to give the caveat if they only use your browsing data to target you with ads, would you be concerned with that? And the truth is, is they're if only it was just advertising, you'd have no reason other than. I guess just being, I, I, I don't actually have a good reason. Like annoyed? I yeah. Mean, that can, I, mean. I mean, the thing is, is would you rather have ads that are, if you're going to see ads no matter what, would you rather see ads that are relevant or ads that are not? Overwhelmingly, data, research, surveys, mm-hmm. everything yeah. proves that people would if rather see. If you asked see, that question, it would be completely different outcome. Like, correct. And yeah. so I think the, the thing is, if you took that very concerned group and you said, but is your, if you were to say, why are you very concerned, I bet if you gave the option of I don't trust them to not use it for anything else, my data for other mm-hmm. than just ads, there would be the overwhelming. And so I, I really do think that very concerned group actually is a side that's just very concerned that it's in general yeah. that I'm not being genuine in my question. And they didn't <laughs> take that caveat of just for ads. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I do think that the privacy thing is something that is not going to go away. And I mean, we see that with California's version of GDPR and things like that coming down the pipe. But I do think uh, this is generally how the public feels. I really think that people are split. And I think younger generations uh, share Sarah's sentiment where it's like, I don't really think it's a big deal. They spent your entire lives growing up creating profiles and giving data away for mm-hmm. free um, and hearing about terms of service that violate all these different privacy things and just kind of with a shoulder shrug. And then you have these older generations that are basically like, I had no idea that this information was going to get used other than so that I could show my friends and family, yeah. you know, um, you know, my trip to Europe this summer or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, in general, I, I swear on, you know, my life that I feel, I feel like there are things that I have talked about with my friends that I never entered into, into that a, a search is, yeah, engine that's that, that one pop thing, up yeah, on Facebook two hours later. Um, but you know, it's we'll say that for another thing. podcast. It's the listening thing. People and I think that that's a part of this too. Um, <laughs> I, I've talked before about why I hate those conspiracy theories so much. I think the bigger concern people should have is um, how good is our data tracking that 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 advertisers can target you without listening to your microphone, and it's so good that you think that they're listening to you. Yeah, and, that's a very good point. And if you ever listen to somebody that talks about this, this is just a small aside because it's a huge pet peeve of mine. People always say, I, you know... I went to the dentist the other day, and while I was at the dentist, he mentioned a toothpaste that I'd never heard of before. And then the next thing I know, I'm getting ads for that exact toothpaste. And it's like, well, you went to the dentist, right? So you've got geolocation. Did you maybe enter that into Google Maps? Was it in your Google Calendar? Mm -hmm. So how integrated, I mean, the more important thing is, is like, Google doesn't say it's not going to use your Google Calendar or your Gmail or any of your appointments or any of that kind of stuff 
or any of the stuff that you've ever typed in your phone. So it's not that he heard you talk about that toothpaste. It's that every all the advertisers so on the planet knew yeah. everything about your dentist appointment going into it. And you don't know that. You don't realize that information is being used. And you're like, well, my dentist said it. That's the only thing that I mm-hmm. remember. So yeah. I think that that's a huge part of this. Um, it drives me crazy. But I think it's the crux of the entire problem, which is people have no idea yeah. how digital advertising uh, works at all. And I think it leads to these huge misconceptions and mistrust. So next poll question. As a reader, which of these revenue streams would you most likely support for all digital publishers and content creators. And I really, I think this sentiment got across in this question, which was, I wanted people to think of it in terms of not which would you prefer or what would you like for certain publishers. If you had to get all content on the internet through one revenue model, um, which one would you be most willing to support? We gave, we had the options of paid subscriptions, free content that's funded by ads, uh, affiliated products, so basically buying products from the publisher, from affiliated uh, advertisers, or donating to the sites directly. So it's a lot of donations. Um, first of all, wh- which would you guys support? Alan, you had to choose? I, I definitely would choose you know, free content that's ad-funded. I feel like it's the, the best model. Um, I mean, I know every time, it seems like every time I go to Wikipedia, they're asking me to donate $3 to them, which I did in fact do once, but, um, you know, I just feel like it's, it's the best way to go about it. I mean, if, if the publisher is going to make, you know, be able to make a living and, and keep their site up to date with good content and, you know, good user experience via, you know, ad money from, you know, ad revenue, then I, I think that's the 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 best way to go especially if they're able to continue to give that content for free to the end user i agree um and free content that's ad funded is what we have right now so as a reader um i would be very surprised if anybody else would like prefer all of their data that they're gathering to suddenly change from the way it currently is um because that would just be drastic i mean like imagine like all of a sudden like everything is a paid subscription and I feel like people would freak out. So free content that is ad-funded is 100% the way that I would go. And I think that's the way that most people would go as well. So I, I'm, I'm a little surprised at the results. 60% said free content ad-funded. And that's the, the gross majority because nothing else got higher than 15%. It sort of split the results. I'm surprised by that because uh, the sentiment we just talked about. 50% of people are concerned about privacy and different things like that and worried about advertising. But... We, as we've talked about before, uh, advertising doesn't necessarily need um, retargeting data or first or third party data uh, to be successful. Um, but what I thought is, I think it makes sense because paid subscriptions, like you said, uh, I think it creates two tiers of the internet, the people that can afford good information and those that can't. And I don't think we want that. I think people see that. Uh, Bifilated products. I definitely don't want to live in a world where I cannot filter through information because everybody is trying to make money off of selling something or um, the publisher directly. So, I mean, if you're concerned about advertisers, you know, think one step further is if the advertisers also charge with creating the content. Because that's essentially what you're asking people to do is, you know, like if you're going to read an article about the latest news in Trump, you know, like maybe they're trying to sell you like Trump shirts or anti-Trump uh, the, shirts the or who, who yeah. knows. Like, uh, and then the last one is to donate. And I think, 
in general, um, people just know that that's not going to work. I don't have a, I mean, I, I think the altruistic version of all of us see the democracy and potentially donate. Yeah. But like you said, with Wikipedia, I think everybody also knows that Wikipedia le has left billions of dollars on the table. Literally billions. And think billions. about all yeah. of the things online that are like you could donate to, like causes and things that are, you know, and then those probably aren't even getting like as much as they should or could. And then asking people to donate to a website. Yeah. For just the purpose of that website being up. I also think that last option, it's, it's growing in popularity in, in, in other mediums as well. Uh, I'd see a lot in podcasts and on yeah. YouTube where content creators who, who make great content are asking their, you know, loyal patrons, hey, you know, if you want exclusive content, then you can donate to my Patreon or you can, you know, Wouldn't that be kind of like an, a subscription though? Um, if you I guess were I like, would fall into that boat, but I but also maybe feel like it's phrasing it differently. Yeah, so I actually, like I actually, uh, I subscribe to a podcast that way through through donation. But I also will say that it's different. It's in the same way that we kind of separate video subscriptions and mm -hmm. and textual ones, and that it's a commodity. So yeah. what you're talking about is usually a content creator that has a podcast or a YouTube channel or something like that, and they're saying, "Hey, it's I, additional. I'm gonna, yeah. yeah, it's additional. If you want." You know, additional content from me. I'm gonna give you the show notes or something like that um, in exchange for a donation. But I can't go someplace else and and get that content either. Yeah, and I know that the question said all digital publishers. So I just I went off there a little bit, but I think right. I think I think Google has you know is said forever. Oh, we're gonna give this funding choices thing where publishers can choose to ask their ask their visitors if they'd like to donate mm -hmm. and. Uh, in the beta trials of that, the publishers are so underwhelmed always by the amount of money that they make. And I think it's always this kind of pipe dream like, well, maybe maybe my audience will be different. They'll see the value and the hard work that I put into my site. And um, unfortunately, never seems to be the case. Um, last question was, which of these best helps you determine the trustworthiness of digital content? This one I had no idea about, but I was very, very interested in the results. And I'm really happy that we got uh, a good poll up on this. So um, just without looking at the results or even giving the options that we gave people, um, just individually, yeah. like how, how, do you, how do you evaluate the trustworthiness of a website if you were to, you know, land on it looking for information somehow? Um, for me, it's the publisher. So, um, I mean, ultimately, we're kind of talking about the New York Times. Like I told you guys, I used to subscribe to the New Yorker. It's the names that you hear all the time. You hear it in school a lot, like every day. Um, that's on social media, surfing around. People are talking about it. Ultimately, the more you recognize a name, you're going to trust it. And so for me, if I type something in to Google and I say, ask a question and there's a random, you know, article, whatever. And then there's something similar, but it's from, you know, the New Yorker or the Washington Post. I'll click on it just because I recognize. Um, and for that reason, I know they've been around for a long time and it's just a trustworthy trustworthiness thing. Not sure if I'll get my correct answer there or exactly what I want to find, but first and foremost, that's where I'll go. Okay. Yeah, and I have to, I definitely have to echo that same sentiment in terms of the source. Like, I'm very, I'm more likely to be critical of the information coming from, like, now this or, or a BuzzFeed-esque, you know, publisher than, like, the New yeah. York Times yeah. or the Washington Post. Um, but my, my visceral, you know, immediate reaction to this question is the content itself. I mean, I am a very visual person, and if I land on a site, 
and you know the contents all over the place the user experience you know the menus all messed up and it just looks crappy you know to put it to put it then they can't they can't know what they're talking about (laughs) exactly and i and i have this reaction of i'm gonna go right back to the search results or i'm gonna go down my facebook feed a little farther and find content that's better suited to me so for me that's that's i think that's the biggest factor out outside of the source because i definitely echo what you're saying where you know you identify with a brand and a source and you know that okay this is going to be a a decent enough quality uh quality to kind of to pass that bar. It's really interesting because I feel the exact opposite of both of you, and I and I would I would think it'd be almost You're the opposite. At the SSL at the top. Maybe yeah, maybe kidding. not. Maybe it's because maybe it's partially because of how badly um, how badly all the different news sources have burned people over over time. I, I, not news sources, I guess, um, just platforms in general where you have to be very skeptical of all information. And the thought is is like, well. If it comes from the New York Times or something like that, at least I know that there's infrastructure that's a brand. Like it's not going to be, you know, completely quote unquote fake news or something like that. Um, I would say the content itself, but in a completely different way than you. Um, The content itself, I could care less what it looks like. And I also know what the research says about objective user experiences, meaning like people don't really as long as the content is browsable. To me, the ultimate user experience is the Apple Reader version of something which is mm-hmm. just plain white text, yeah. background with just the text. Like, that's all I want. And I, me, myself, I will read the content and I will determine whether or not I think it's trustworthy. And that's partially probably an ego thing, but it's also <laughs> me feeling like I have the ability to discern whether or not something is accurate based on, you know, where is, it, where is it citing information? Where is the information coming from? What images are associated with this? Um, does it strike me as factually accurate? Does it have grammatical errors and things like that? So I'm not as concerned visually with it as I am the, 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 the quality of the content itself. Um, the referring source makes it different too. So if I search it in Google I, and it ranks high, I know enough about SEO to know like there's a certain screen that happens there as much as people probably want to doubt it. Uh, I'm going to basically say give Google the benefit of the doubt and use the content to kind of evaluate what I th- think about that. Um, the author of the content might matter on some some things. I'm looking for specific expertise. I really will ask the question of like, who, who wrote this? Because if you're going to give me advice on SEO or something like that, like, are you just some fly-by-night guy from New Jersey? Or are you the guy that used to run the data science department at Moz or something like that? Um, so that stuff matters to me. I read a lot of stuff that's not like brand oriented, I think for major news, of course, I'm probably going to look at, you know, the major sites because I just think that they probably have better resources in mm-hmm. terms of generating news. But if I don't know, like if I'm looking for information about uh, traveling to Bali, for example, uh, which I'm going to do here soon, like a lot of the sites that are out there are written by people that have been there or traveled there. And a lot of them are not large publishers. So how do I determine like there's some people that say it's really dangerous and you should get every single vaccination you can possibly get before you go. And then you have a bunch of other people that are basically like, yeah, don't worry about it. You'll I live be, there. Yeah. Yeah. You'll, <laughs> you'll be fine. It's all overblown. So it's like, how do you know what to trust? So you, you got to travel kinda... and leisure and they'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you make it, I think you bring up a really good point in terms of like you yourself being able to discern whether or not um, something is, is trustworthy or not. And I feel like people who work in, uh, you know, 
business intelligence or market intelligence will be the first people to tell you that, you know, whenever you are reading content or consuming content from quote unquote reputable sources, you know, oftentimes it's it's a good measure to go down there at the bottom and see where they're getting these sources mm-hmm. because people who work in those industries are going to be the ones who will tell you, you know, people like to cherry pick data because, you know, it will help them further their point without showing you the whole picture. So I think it's a really good point to bring up. Closing remarks, Sarah? I was thinking... In defense of brands. <laughs> I'm thinking like, and I'm curious what you have to say, Alan, just like going off of what you just said. Um, I mean, like I'm fresh out of school and it's been engraved into my mind that, yes, yeah, so you probably have too, engraved into my mind that whenever you are writing any type of piece or doing any research, it has to be from a credible source. And for all of my classes, all of my journalism classes, what I mentioned before, Washington Post, New York Times, all these, those were the acceptable, credible sources. Um, and so I would find really, actually really good content online from a forum of some guy who seems pretty smart and he's talking about whatever and they're going back and forth. And I'm like, okay, this is, this is good information. I'm going to put it into my piece that I'm writing, um, but I'm not going to source it because mm-hmm. this is just going to my professors and they read that and they're like oh she's like getting this information from a forum or from a blog like that is not right like it needs to be from these big name yeah. publishers and so i think just after the past eight years high school and college of just doing that over and over it's kind of trained to yeah and i think those big publishers you know when when my professor said the same thing in terms of credible sources i i think with their what they're alluding to is that these big publishers, they are more often than not going to do, their, their journalists are going to do their due diligence to ensure that those sources are verified, what they're saying is true and can be backed up by data or other sources. Um, because, you know, those big players in the industry, they have, um, they're a lot more likely to be sued um, if they mm-hmm. are found to be, um, true, you know, true. what they're saying, they're, they're republishing slander or libel or stuff that's inaccurate because um, they can get in big trouble for that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's possible, but I think we've seen enough times here recently, especially that um, number one, like the, there's a, been multiple journalist fraud cases, right, where stories are oh, inaccurate. Yeah. Or in, in, and there's also, and not to get into the fake news discussion, but there are, there are biases in a lot of the reporting, and that's almost become a commodity in itself. Like, what is your flavor of information? Absolutely. And I think that that's where the ability to discern and understand, like, where you get your information, you everybody's sort of being able to kind of pick and choose. Like, I might choose to not have any brand information because mm-hmm. I decide I don't want a flavor, right? Yep. But in doing so, you're choosing a flavor, too, because you're basically saying, I only want independent quote-unquote takes on news and information yeah and that's something that we learned as well is that there's no true um you know there's very little that's in journalism where it's completely objective there's always going to be some sort of flavor or uh, direction they're leaning in in terms of what their underlying tone is i remember my journalism class i always thought it was ironic uh they always talked about how with the news it's it's impossible to eliminate bias but the, the goal should be, and I remember writing this on a, on a test paper because they forced it so much, is to be fair and balanced. And I think that I couldn't agree more, but I think it's, it's so ironic because that's the Fox, it's yeah. the Fox News 
Uh, it's the Fox News slogan, which is funny because Fox News Forever was kind of known as being the maybe more slanted uh, mm-hmm. news source. And now I think they, they probably all have, like, could be painted with a broad brush Absolutely. into one uh, political persuasion or the other. But I do think it's interesting because I do think that concept is true, which is, you know, when it comes to news specifically, um, the goal should not always be to be unbiased. It should be to try to be fair and balanced. And I think that's essentially what we're always trying to do with information as readers as well, is to try to gather as much fair and balanced information as possible, at least the majority of us, I think. Yeah, and that's what that's what Google wants you to do too, yeah. Google's trying to make it as fair and balanced as possible too. So uh, we want to thank you for joining us on this episode of the Publisher Lab. Uh, I know it was a little different than normal, but hopefully you guys enjoyed this kind of change of pace. We'll try to do some more of these poll shows if we can. Um, but if you didn't enjoy it or you really liked it, let us know. Uh, tweet us at Ezoic, and uh, we'll be sure to bring up any topics that you want to share with us on the podcast. And uh, if you have an opportunity, leave us an iTunes review. Those things are great. It's continued to help us grow the show and bring you more cool stuff like Twitter poll episodes. And I think that's it. Thank you guys for joining us, and we'll catch you next time on the Publisher Lab.